0: Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Posthumer, coming to you from two SER studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Last week's budget was described by many as a cash splash that focused on one-offs and short-term measures aimed at helping with the cost of living as we head into an election. With the pressures of inflation, interest rates and low wage growth continuing to be a long-term threat, the question must be asked, what could the government have done differently to address these issues long-term? Today on the show, we take a look at the 2022 budget and explore the economic levers the government has available to deal with these kinds of big issues. I'm joined in the studio by David Bond, Senior Lecturer in the Accounting Discipline Group at UTS, and by Cameron Kirko, Head of Macroeconomics and Strategy at Pitcher Partners Accountants. Cameron, David, welcome to Think Business Futures.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you. Likewise. David, let's start with you. Um, I want to to start with your quick takedown of this budget. I mean, everyone's probably heard one of these, but for those who haven't, let's do it. What do you think it achieves, winners and losers, that kind of thing, to get started? (laughs)
1: Ah, uh, the old winners and losers. Yes. <laughs> um, look, I mean, it's obviously been framed as an election budget, um, and given some of the polling that's come out very recently, you know, it looks like it may have had some effect uh, to help the government uh, in that respect. But yeah, it's obviously been framed as um, this is an opportunity for them to to sell themselves to the Australian public.
0: All right, pretty straightforward. Yeah, definitely an election um, budget, many are saying. Cameron, a lot of the things that we're going to talk today about are around cost of living, inflation, wages and interest rates. And they're all the big buzzwords that people are talking about and people are interested in. Um, And we'll get onto some other stuff a little bit later in the program. All these things are really interconnected. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't understand the relationship between these things, it's probably worth mapping out what inflation is, Yep. Why we're experiencing it and how it connects to things like
2: interest rates and wage growth. Sure. So, in terms of inflation, broadly speaking, what we're talking about is just the change in prices for the goods and services we spend our money on on a day to day basis. So, that could be things like food and tobacco, alcohol is one example, another one's furniture. Another one um, in terms of cost of living would be rent as an example. So why are some of those things going higher? So a big part of it has been just to do with the pandemic. So we've had supply bottlenecks emerge around the world and that's really, for someone like Australia where we import a lot of goods, that has led to a rise in costs for a lot of things that we would normally take for granted. The other example would be a lot of governments around the world threw a lot of spending at households to help support them during the worst of the pandemic and lockdowns and the like and so if you can imagine what that did to consumer spending basically people locked up in the home they can't spend money on a night out on like a restaurant or something The only outlet a lot of people had was spending it on goods to improve their home or to improve their standard of living. And so what that has led to is this massive build um, in goods at the moment and massive spending in that space. And just to give you some context, like in in the US, retail sales is tracking well above sort of its long-term trend. We've had this massive shift into goods relative to services And as a result, businesses aren't equipped to deal with that. So it takes time to meet that wall of demand. And so that's been another driver of inflation. Now, bring it all back. Why does this matter for interest rates and wage growth? What's the connection? So wage growth, often it's something where the actual workers will um, sort of benchmark what they're asking for from their employers based on the cost of living. So if that's rising, often you'll see some sensitivity to inflation and so people will be demanding higher wages as a result. On the interest rate side, what the RBA is trying to do ideally is to take the economy on a smoother trajectory, if you will. So if it's running too hot, They will increase rates to try and slow down the rate of growth. And if it's running too weak, that's when you typically see interest rate cuts. And what rate cuts are meant to do is to make the cost of borrowing cheaper. And so they encourage further credit creation amongst the banks. And then ideally, that makes its way through into um, more goods and services circulating through the economy and starts economic growth inflecting higher. To
0: continue talking about cost of living, as you mentioned, David, you know, a lot of people have called this budget a pre-election, cash splash, one-off payments, you know, six month fuel excise cut, short-term things. Do you see anything in this budget that addresses the cost of living in the long term?
1: Look, I mean, personally, I didn't. Um, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a lot there in that that long-term cost of living point of view. I mean, obviously, and and coming off the back of the discussion around inflation and, and sort of wage growth. I suppose the question is, what levers does the government have to pull in relation to dealing with some of those aspects? Yeah. Um, I mean, some of that's coming from other sources. and you know, You've got shocks from around the world taking place. I mean, even the Ukrainian um, crisis at the moment is, is leading to, to impacts on, on Australia and, and commodity prices. So are there things the government can do to deal with that longer term issue?
2: I might break it up in two ways. There's Mm. shorter-term fixes they can do. Mm. So one of them would be, okay, they halve the fuel excise. If they got rid of the fuel excise entirely, that's a massive cost to the government budget, but it's a massive windfall to households and businesses. So like one natural question would be, why did they only choose to halve Mm. it? Why did they only do it for six months? The other thing that they could do, to your point, as a short-term fix... But it kind of requires longer-term planning is what other countries have around the world is in terms of strategic reserves. Mm. So you enact a cost in the short term, but in the long term, when you do have these crisis periods where um, like commodity prices spike, you would ideally have a strategic reserve of, say, oil or other commodities that you could draw down upon. But that's difficult, right?
1: It is. Wasn't it? I think Senator Jim Molan was talking about mm. the, the concerns around the lack of sort of strategic fuel reserves that mm. Australia had. That you know, I think it was only like thirty days—some incredibly short, yeah. short period of time—that we had these reserves available to us. Yeah, um,
2: and part of that's just cost, right? Like a lot of governments have really shied away from the cost of building this redundancy because we've had a world where we can get stuff like fuel and that. Like fuel prices haven't been an issue for, what, almost a decade? Like Mm. you have to go back to sort of 2014 when oil prices were at really elevated levels and energy was a really big concern. And another example of a lack of longer term thinking would be, I guess, the UK and the, the lack of redundancy they had there. And then when you've had energy prices spike in Europe in recent months since the start of this year, you've had a whole bunch of UK um, energy retailers. So these are people you would go and buy you know, your, util- your power from. They've all collapsed. And a big part of that is because of how slow the regulator has been to adjust to the shift in um, wholesale energy prices over there. And so these guys are offering consumers a fixed rate but in the meantime, their cost to actually deliver that has massively spiraled out. Seems, and that's, sorry, yeah. yeah I was just going to say that's partly due to the lack of redundancy they've built in their system. So they've made it a lot more sensitive to energy market variability compared to what they used to have.
1: I mean, the thing that sort of springs to my mind is mm-hmm. it's almost, I mean, whilst this is a discussion around the budget and, mm-hmm. and the impacts of that and the election coming up, there almost feels, you know not just in australian leadership but yeah. more globally that the system has changed i mean supply chains are now under increasing pressure this mm. because you know the globe as it was as was as what it was has sort of somewhat changed i mean we have china doing what china is doing mm. um we've got issues in europe and that old model of how the world operated has it just felt subtly shifted mm. And we haven't yet caught up. So when you're talking about the UK and the and the retail providers um, in in energy, they, the ability for the regulator to move quickly on that and is that a I suppose this is a problem with leadership? Is a problem just systemically that systems now just aren't set up to deal with the situation we're now in? The question I suppose is is this just a short to medium term thing that we're dealing with, or is this actually now the world is changing and will has changed and has changed almost permanently Um,
2: yeah no look I think it's it's a fair question I'm still in the camp where I'm not a believer of that and I think part of the reason is like we've thrown a whole bunch of shocks at the global economy right and I think it's just natural that it takes a long time for different countries to digest it Mm. and at very different paces too, right? Like, if you look at um, just the scale of, I guess, like, let's pick just the workforce adjustment, some countries have gone through with the pandemic, Mm. the layoffs, and, um, like, we, you know, had JobKeeper and the like, and we kept workers attached to their businesses um, much better than you could say was the case in the States, right? Um, but in terms of longer term change, I think the underlying drivers of globalisation, which which is one of the things like sort of you're your pointing towards, I think the justification's still there. I think we are seeing signs and moves to sort of build in more redundancy into supply chains and the like. But I think those moves can really only go so far because there are really rational practical business decisions for why corporations function that way and until those operations are completely taken off the table so for example um taiwan got wiped off the map and like we no longer had taiwan semiconductor which um for those of you that don't know is like one of the the largest and most critical parts of the semiconductor chain globally Right, and we've seen the U.S., for example, try and onshore certain mm. parts of that sector now. We've um, Intel champion uh, some legislation to that effect. But part of the reason Taiwan Semiconductor is sort of the paragon in that space is because they've spent tens of billions of dollars and they've amassed quite a significant technological edge on the competition. And as a result, other businesses will go to them, and that's an example of globalization been a success story. There's a reason why businesses aren't going to Intel and they're diverting money and CapEx towards um, TSMC and that's because for their end product, it just makes um, complete and utter sense and so I think a lot of those drivers will still be intact but we have seen moves amongst the edges and I think unless we see governments make a really concerted gesture I don't think we're going to see Long-term change. Mm. Do you think that a
0: part of global the globalization that you're talking about mm. is also a recognition that with that comes the potential for more economic shock? In terms of, I mean, what we're doing to the environment might, might be a separate thing, but um, some of the nihilists and the way they talk about AI, the way mm. they the way people talk about the possibility of more pandemics more frequently, and mm. you know, the engineering of pandemics and things like that, yeah. are we forgetting about these things you know when it comes to the conversation about globalization
2: oh to an extent right but it's just a trait so what we have to sacrifice to the altar of efficiency and no no but like that's yeah. that's effectively what it is it's a trade off right mm. we get a more integrated work we get world we get more efficiency we get cheaper goods like those come with costs. We're an integrated world, and I don't think we're going to change that easily.
1: I do wonder how much of that then, you know, I remember going traveling after university, and you basically couldn't get in contact with people back at home. It was a very rare thing that you'd have to go down with your phone card to, to a phone to, to yeah. do that. You couldn't just, you couldn't see people to, you know, yeah. have, a, have a FaceTime or, or Skype with them or sorry, no, Zoom as we are yeah. nowadays. And so expectations around what is, what is living in and how you go about about things has changed. And I think we've seen a little bit of a shift back to seeing, okay, well, when things starts to start to shut down um and we have limitations on how we can move and where we can go and what we can what we can do. Yeah. Um we start to wonder like, well, you know, how terrible is this? But in many ways we're still far better off than we were yeah. not that long ago. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um We've gone so macro here that it's difficult to bring it back to (laughs) fuel
0: excise cuts. (laughs) But um, I I guess, I mean, the interesting thing that I found about what came out of the budget is that, I mean, budgets always make a lot of predictions. And, you know, they, they make a lot of assumptions and they make a lot of predictions. And in this budget despite all the shocks that we've seen, you know, the predictions are based on smooth sailing for the next however long, however period of time. Do you think that that's a flaw in the way that budgets are put together?
2: Uh, yeah, t- look, to to an extent, the, there are a few quirks with how they do their forecast and that always makes it a difficult exercise. So, a good example is um, commodity prices. So they're historically very, very, very conservative when it comes to predicting iron ore and coal, which are like sort of our two major commodity exports. So, and that always gives them scope to, um, you know, surprise on the upside. Um, so, you know, you might query why why that bias is built into things. Um, and one thing i'm still never 100% across is like how how much some of the thinking in the the budget exercise is is subject to different kinds of pressures that you know might might call into question some of the forecasts but a good cross-check you can do is, um, and, and something I do is like sort of look at, you know, what are sort of consensus economists' economist expectations. What are what's the RBA putting out? That's something anyone can access. The RBA makes it freely available and and quite handy um, to to look at their forecasts. And look, they're they're different to what's in the budget, but in in some some areas they're not too dissimilar. I think um, some of the questions I had out of the budget was probably just sort of the the, the rosy outlook for wage growth and unemployment at the same time. They're sort mm. of flagging changes to economic growth and the like.
1: Yeah. I mean, budgets are forward-looking yeah. documents and whatever, whether it be governments, whether it be you know, yeah. organisations there has to be assumptions built in. So, I mean, you can't get away from that. So then it almost is the question, should you just not have these at all? Because we can't be certain about the future, which Mm, we never can be. And I don't think that's necessarily a good world to live in. Yeah, you have to have assumptions built in. And the future is always going to work out slightly differently. I mean, you only look at, we were back in the black and then we weren't. Mm. Um, And that was not far, they were not far off that happening and then the world changed so it's yeah. it's difficult mm. yeah
2: i think maybe one thing you could ask is like how much structurally has changed about the aussie economy since where we were pre pandemic and pre pandemic i think people forget just the you know raft of challenges we'll have in terms of you know getting inflation out getting economic growth getting wage growth And there are things that have changed for sure, but then part of me thinks like, are those longer-term challenges still all there? And should there be, you know, maybe a little bit of pessimism baked into some of the numbers? But
1: as an accountant, I'm naturally conservative with things. So you, yeah, and you do because there's almost two layers to it. There's the actual there's the actual budget exercise and the technical elements of it, but it's Mm. also how it's conveyed um, and the and the and the Messaging that comes from that and how does, you know, as a document, as a political document to the person in the street who they're not going to sit down and read no. read the papers. Um, so they're not going to be going through that with a fine tooth comb. So they're getting that high level kind of this is what's happening. We're going to see fuel get cut or fuel, fuel excise cut and fuel prices drop a little bit. You know, you're going to see the the tax uh, the extension or not the extension of the um, the offset but just the add-on for this yeah, extra add-on. little period of time yeah. but then is anyone picking up the fact that once that completely unwinds which it will yeah. do fairly shortly everyone's all of that bracket is going to be paying more yeah. mm. um, unless something else gets announced as you know, next well, year as part of the, part of the election cycle. I mean, cycle. one of the
2: other assumptions you see some people discussing is just they, they extended again another year, well, even though it was a temporary they, measure. Well,
1: they did that with yeah. the um, accelerated tax write-off for, yeah. for business. I mean, I remember being in that when that got announced, being in the, the lockup when that got announced. And, um, you know, we think, well, if it just brings forward deductions that you'd have otherwise, I mean, yes, yeah. there's a cash flow effect, but ultimately yeah. it's a net zero for the business because you're just getting the same deduction just earlier on. Yeah. And then it kept getting increased in terms of the amount that you could run through it. It kept getting bigger in terms of the types of businesses and the size of the businesses could get it. And I don't know if it, I'd have to double check. I don't know if it's actually come off now, but yeah. it just seems to now be baked in that this accelerated depreciation is now just a part of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, how much to temporary things, yeah. um, and, a, and, a um, a colleague of mine actually sort of pointed out you know, how many um, how many times does something have to be temporary before it becomes just a permanent thing.
0: Mm. Yeah. To finish off, mm. I want to talk about the difference between good policy and good politics, and how much that affects um, you know the levers that the government are willing to pull when it comes to dealing with these kinds of issues. You know, people have floated ideas around just making a cut in the fuel excise applicable to those who are hit hardest by fuel costs, changing things for certain segments of the population. When you talk about housing affordability and and that sort of thing, I mean, a lot of people say that Shorten basically lost the, the last election on his negative gearing policy. And it's something that, you know, governments are just completely scared to touch nowadays. What levers can be pulled and how much is the... Election cycle a factor when it comes to being able to actually put some reformist policies in place and change things in the long term.
2: I think look the pressure's there and it will whether whoever it is like Labor or Liberal it'll lead towards them sort of um, steering away from certain policies, particularly where like Australia, like any other country, you've got some pretty powerful interest groups, and so some things just aren't going to be politically tenable when you try and put you know your practical thinking hat on you're like okay so some kinds of reforms probably aren't that easy to do so then okay you move on and think okay what can we do and i think Partly that's a reflect, going to be a reflection of the biases of both parties. So, you know, coalition, the tagline will be, you know, smaller government, cut taxes, and, like, try and encourage the private sector that way. That's the tagline, right? <laughs> like, and a Labor <laughs> government, people will oversimplify and say, oh, they'll overspend and they'll raise ta- taxes, right? Those are the taglines out there as part of the public debate. But in terms of long-term policies, like, you know, OK, let's imagine, ideal world, what what could be done? So... I mean if we bring in economic accounting okay how do we grow the economy from this year to the next we either export more than we import we spend more and invest in like businesses trying to grow their production consumers spend more or the government spends more one of those levers is what we've got to actually grow the economy on a top level and it's not an easy exercise right so one of the one big thing that you constantly hear people talk about is productivity reform and what the hell does that mean actually um, and to be honest with you i don't think people have great answers for it necessarily I, I think one thing that kind of makes sense to me is this talk about you know cut the red tape and i under, so and that's the theory that you know businesses are really stymied by regulations mm. they would They would absolutely produce more and sell more goods if they could, right? Um, And so, you know, we cut these regulations and we make it easier for our businesses. And I think in some sectors, absolutely, there's some truth to it. I mean, if you open a book of some government regs, like, I mean, you'll be dead before you actually finish reading the thing. Um, Look, so... Are there business needs in certain spaces? Yeah, I I think so, and and certainly more can be done. But I think the other thing to think about is just balance... Like, it's not just about sort of the numbers necessarily. It's the budget's also you know, a tool for the government to exercise its fiscal policy. And by that, I mean just its ability to spend in our economy, which mm. is one of those neglected powers and has been for the last few decades, really. And it's it's like governments only remember it exists in a crisis period, and then um, <laughs> they, they tend to forget about it. But what I mean by that is so okay one thing you know that is a hot topic and it has been for a few years is climate change like what are some of the things the government could be doing in that space in terms of longer term reform and some of the businesses are already forcing the issue mm, you're mm. having insurers say well we're not going to underwrite risks in this space because it's just not worth it. I think it was probably missed in this um, budget coverage. The government's, you know, finally proceeding with this insurance pool uh, for North Queensland because no insurer is dumb enough to actually go into that space and uh, write risk because cyclones and other weather events happen too often mm. for them to justify it. So the government actually has to intervene with a pool and you, I, everyone that's a mm. taxpayer is effectively underriding the cost of living in, the, in those regions and look and i understand look the people that live there didn't make the choice or whatever. but it's just a reflection of how some of these um big picture issues can actually come around and affect us in quite a you know meaningful concrete way and so look it's it's a balancing act the economic side absolutely is important but Government policy can be used to deliver many goals. And some of those ones where, you know, longer term thinking and ambition, it can be a vehicle for that too. And so whether it's something like productivity reform or something like climate change, government policy is one way we can encourage it. And like businesses are already doing it. You you pick up the average annual report today and things like ESG, the environment, are much more topical than they were even five years ago.
1: Well yeah, I mean directors mm-hmm. are becoming far more aware and, and the risks for business yeah. are far more aware of these issues because it you know, if you're moving away from that myopic sort of short termism yeah. um, you know, they realise these things are going to have impacts on their organizations down the line so they can't just ignore them because they are going to come you know they some of those things are going to come home to roost um on i suppose a slightly different vein is actually something um that was raised earlier on about framing winners and losers from budgets and the way that that narrative often gets Mm -hmm. you see it so often now it it just becomes the default that the next day there's going to be here the winners here the losers it makes it very not team sort of red versus blue but it then becomes this issue of like you know what have you got out of this mm. as opposed to it and it becomes very much around the individual and look individuals are absolutely important we all are individuals but we are also are Part of family units, we also are part of you know local communities that we that we live in. We're part of broader a broader community, which is uh, the nation. Mm-hmm. And I think as as we start to kind of cut it up in terms of winners and losers, how we how we frame it in that way, it becomes it can become quite damaging because then it becomes you know what have I got out of this, as mm-hmm. opposed to sort of where is this all going? And then that that features into that politics yeah. versus policy element to it because. If it it, if everything gets framed as winners and losers, then the politics starts to really over really become the overarching element of and drives policy. Which look, it always will to some extent. I mean, we can't get away from that. But I think it just feels like the needle shifted too far one way. Um, in terms of the politics overriding kind of good policy.
0: Absolutely. Gentlemen, it's been fascinating. Um, I reckon we could sit here and go for however however much longer because this is going from micro to macro and um, covering a range of different things. Uh, but we do have to end it there. David, Cameron, thanks for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Yeah,
1: thanks, Stefan. Yeah, no, Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to my guests, Cameron Kirko and David Bond. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business next week.